I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, we're going back in time to examine the siege on Ruby Ridge, an 11-day standoff between federal officials and a Christian anti-government family known as the Weavers, led by Randy Weaver. This family was known for its rather apocalyptic viewpoint and the standoff End in tragedy with Randy Weaver's wife, dog, and young child, as well as, we should point out, a U.S. Marshal perishing by the end of the incident. It also turned the Weaver family into martyrs for the anti-government right. And in fact, alongside Waco, served as an impetus for Timothy McVeigh when it came to the Oklahoma City bombing. It is a rather dark and dreary case. And before we get into it, I just want to note that I don't want this show to be considered related in any way to what has happened with Kyle Rittenhouse and the Rittenhouse trial. In my view, if you bring an AR-15 to Kenosha like Kyle Rittenhouse did, well, that's just going to cause escalation. And escalation is the name of the game in the Ruby Ridge case. It's a story that can teach us the importance of escalation and de-escalation when dealing with high-intensity situations. And it also, for many, raises questions about civil liberties and the aforementioned subject of blowback. Joining us to unpack all of this and much more is C. Derek Varn, a longtime friend of the show, and Freddie DeBar, a very controversial blogger on Substack. And now, without any further ado, let's get right to it with C. Derek Varn and Freddie DeBar on the 11-day siege of Ruby Ridge. Oh, and by the way, if you think I'm all in on the Weavers all of a sudden, let me tell you I would probably not want to live next to Randy Weaver, but that should go without saying. I mean, this is a family that was driven by religious, particularly apocalyptic, motivations. And it's a very, very, very frightening case. And I really don't want to be seen as an apologist for the extremely apocalyptic, far-right-wing ideology that informed the Weaver family and the tragedy that followed. 
but I must say that I do believe the case was mishandled, leading, of course, to catastrophic consequences that emboldened far-right anti-government groups in America. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with C. Derek Varn and Freddie DeBar. Welcome back to Parallax Views, C. Derek Varn, and also a first-time guest, Freddie DeBar. Uh, how is everyone doing tonight? Good. Doing good. No, I'm doing well. So, we're going to be talking about a bit of a subject I've always been interested in, um, and I wonder if people are going to ask why we're covering it, and I, I think there are reasons to cover it these days, uh, but the Siege of Ruby Ridge, the standoff between uh, federal agents, um, the federal government, and the Weaver family, and just so everyone knows beforehand, uh, I probably wouldn't want to live next to the Weavers, but I also have a lot of issues with how this whole thing was handled, and I guess... That's where we can get into this with uh, Freddie, who I think you've taken sort of an interest in this case over the years. I know that uh, Thaddeus Russell has talked about it with you. Um, what makes you interested in this case? Well, I mean, I think that it's a good example of uh, something that if we take seriously the <clears throat> uh, critique of the police state um, over the aggressive uh, policing, the militarization of policing, um, overreaches by you know, prosecutorial overreach, all these things, um, uh, then the Ruby Ridge story is something that could be incorporated into that narrative. But it is not because uh, the uh, what I would call the victims of uh, the Ruby Ridge uh, situation, um, the Weavers uh, and their friend uh, Kevin Harris, um, were uh, undoubtedly uh, you know, rural conservatives who lived in a um, <clears throat> a very sort of uh, anti-government and um, sort of uh, hermetic lifestyle, at least. Well, they, they basically believed the apocalypse was coming. Yeah. Right. Yes. I mean, often the, the, the term white supremacist gets attached to them. Um, the the evidence for that seems pretty thin to me. But um, they are cast in, in, in any event. They are not sort of in the same culture war uh, role that um, uh, that you know uh, someone like George Floyd is, uh, and obviously in many ways. And so um, they are not; their story is not incorporated. But I think that you know, if we take the, that movement seriously, you have to incorporate people who uh, are like are more like the Weavers than like George Floyd. Like you have to be getting uh, Republicans and conservatives seriously invested in this issue. I mean, if I could just add to that real quickly. I mean, I look at Ruby Ridge, I look at Waco, and I also look at the move bombing as being all very similar incidents. But it's it's weird because I know a lot of people on the right that don't look at the move bombing for their own reasons and people on the left that look at the move bombing but won't look at the uh, Ruby Ridge case or the Waco case. So I, I think there's truth to what you're saying. Derek, did you have anything to add to what Freddie has already said? And I, I guess for folks that don't know, uh, this standoff essentially ended with um, Vicki Weaver, the mother, the matriarch of the family, um, the son, and the son's dog. I believe the dog's name was Shriker, all basically just being wiped out. They all died. And I believe a, a federal agent also perished um, in the incident. So, Derek, do you have anything you want to add to either what I was saying or what uh, Freddie was saying? 
Well, I mean, just go into the details. The, the, the mother was shot holding a baby by a sniper as soon as she stuck her head off. Um, and the son was 14 years old. Now, there was a firefight. It is unclear that the son, if the son knew what the hell was going on, because they weren't going after any of the family. They were going specifically after Randy Reaver. Um, it's interesting to me because I think popular perception of this has significantly changed partly because it's been left out and partly because it is seen as the incident one of two incidents with waco that led to the federal government being quote soft on right-wing extremism and so um i have heard people in the last 10 years paint this as you know maybe the the feds actually weren't severe enough which to me is crazy when you look at the lawsuit history around it there's like i mean weaver won not just one against uh, uh, against the criminal cases, but also run civil injunction suits um, at, going on well into 2001 when this happened in 1992. Um, the, the, but it's interesting to me because that perception is very different. When I was in high school, and, and people who know my background know that I you know, was a conservative in my, in my younger 20s, but when I was in high school, you know, I was... You know, a zine, a zine punkster, and into a lot of the you know anarchist scene. Um, and I was on this e server that I would check at the library after school, and it was a Rage Against Machine e server, right? Mm -hmm. And what was interesting about this back then is even sort of, and we're not talking about disciplined Marxists; we're talking about Rage Against Machine fans. But people could put this together. Um, I don't remember the move bombing being mentioned because I don't think a lot of people knew about that, but they did link it to the Panthers, um, to the to the to the way that the feds had gone after the Panthers and how many Panthers have been uh, killed in unnecessary, you know, unnecessary aggressive actions. Um, it, that was the way it was painted amongst the kind of left liberals that that in, in the 90s. And I think I think. Uh, fears of the militia movement coming back to what they are. And, I, and it's something I think has been largely forgotten. Um, uh, and the focus on, on terrorism moving back domestically um, has so led... The, the, in other words, more... So we've gone from fears of, uh, you know, jihadist terrorism um, after 9-11 back to the sort of you know, what if we have more McVeigh's on our hands now? Right. I mean, you know, not to say that there wasn't like a, in, in 1995, well, when the Oklahoma City bombing, I do remember for a second, they thought it might have been, quote, Muslim terrorist, unquote. I was 17 or 16 at the time. Um, but it was still, it. we'd had enough. There had been militia bombings. I mean, um, there would also been Waco, which had been an inciting incident, probably as much as Ruby Ridge. And... Um, I will also uh, second what Freddie says and that I've heard these people call white, called white supremacist a lot, and I haven't found hard evidence for it. So I, so I wanted to I wanted to ask you both about that, because, I mean, the most I've seen, I was rewatching. I think it was the PBS American Experience documentary on this. And the most I've seen that I find disturbing uh, when it comes to white supremacist thing is. You know, Weaver was wearing the uh, a shirt that said, just say no to Zog, you know, the Zionist occupied government. And I mean, I guess he was talking to Richard Butler and the uh, the Aryan Nations people. But why, why would you guys say that the 
evidence isn't all there to say he was definitively a white supremacist or that his family was. I mean, the organizations that he was in um, were not sort of, I mean, he had every opportunity to be in explicitly white uh, supremacist organizations where he lived at that time. Um, and the organizations that we know that he was affiliated with were uh, just sort of hardcore uh, conservative separatists. Now, I mean, a lot for a lot of people, like that's enough, right? Like the, that, that to be in that milieu is to be um, uh, a sort of uh, uh, associated with white supremacy. Um, but to me, um, I mean, the broader thing is, you know, uh, <clears throat> the senselessness of what happened, right? I mean, I don't think Randy Weaver was a good guy. He's a good guy. Um, but uh, the senselessness of what happened, right, should should be the, the primary uh, factor and not necessarily like the character of Randy Weaver. So just to add more context uh, for people listening who may not know, so the initial charge, the reason why the marshals show up in the first place, they're there because of, of a failure to appear by Randy Weaver. He doesn't show up to court. And uh, and let's let's actually back up. Why okay. does he? Okay, so end up right. getting, yeah. Well, well, this is the thing. So the 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 charge against him was for what is really a pretty bullshit weapons charge. I mean, I believe the specific allegation is that he sawed off uh, a a shotgun. He created a sawed off shotgun, which is illegal, uh, and then he sold it to somebody. Um, and right, but that, wasn't that someone an informant that was trying to flip it? It was entrapment. Right. Right. Yeah. That's the other part. Right. Um, so, uh, so it's a, it's a trapment to begin with. It's a bullshit weapons charge. Um, he was given three conflicting court dates, which is a fact that the government does not dispute. So, I mean, failure to appear, obviously, if you are given three conflicting court dates um, in different paperwork, that's a relevant uh, issue. And the response is to send a team of marshals in camo with M16 assault rifles to his house, right? Uh, and uh, that is just not a proportional response in it by any means, right? As, as uh, Derek said, you know, we don't know, uh, you know, everything that happened in the firefight. Um, who shot first is, of course, a matter of dispute because it always is. But what is well, just- Well, real quick, I think the, uh, isn't the federal government story that uh, Keith, the family friend who was with the Weavers, shot, and then that's why they shot the dog, and, and they, the Weavers- say no it was they shot the dog and then the son said something like uh you son of a bitch you shot my dog yeah and then they shot the kid yeah i mean the the, the weaver story has been consistent has consistently been that um that they're they're literally going out so the the marshals uh threw rocks or something they, they, they made a noise to draw out specifically to draw out the dog the dog runs out uh, uh they follow the dog to see what's happening uh, and in the Weaver's case, the, the, um, again, the marshals, again, in camo and with assault rifles, shoot the dog dead. Uh, the 14-year-old son reacts, you know, emotionally, but I think understandably, returns fire on these marshals. Uh, 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 I think he hits one. Uh, one of the marshals was killed, this guy Dugan. But anyway, they have a firefight. Uh, the son is killed along with the dog. Uh, Kevin Harris, who's the friend uh, who's, who's there with them, gets hit. Uh, Randy Weaver is also hit. Um, and, and then, you know, you have the, the, the situation that was just brought up a second ago, which was, you know, uh, they start a siege. They have snipers in place. Sniper shoots and hits Randy Weaver, but doesn't kill him. When Randy Weaver is running back into the house with his 16-year-old daughter, and I think Harris also, um, the sniper essentially fi fires blindly into the house. 
and strikes uh, the the his wife, Randy Weaver's wife, um, killing her instantly while she was clutching an infant in her in her arms. Um, and so it's not it's not hard to see why this inspired a lot of outrage, right? Like, but unfortunately, in 2021, right, you have to believe in the moral blamelessness of people to think that they're that they are uh, uh, you know worthy of of out generating outrage. Derek, I, I have a few things I wanted to comment on, but uh, first I want to let you have the table and respond to anything there. Well, it's interesting because the way we respond to moralizing outrage, this is not a liberal or conservative uh, trait alone. Um, you can see this in the immediate discrediting of um, uh, George Floyd um, over past instances, real and imagined. Um, and it, it's become a system of American life as if who does what with state violence is a Smithian, uh, you know, a, a Smithian calculus. So it's a, just a friend enemy distinction. Right. And we just have to find the proof of the friend or enemy. And I think that radically uh, misleads people as to what was going on. And I think the other context we have now is the fears about the six, the insurrection on the six. Um, although again, if I am completely frank, I don't really understand uh, some of the responses I have seen from liberals and, and, and this one even left us on this about when, you know, uh, police violence and power and stuff is okay when it's okay to call the feds and when it's not. Um, but beyond that, um, this seems to, when this gets brought up again, and we're going to see stuff like this again, because we are probably going to see domestic terrorist um, inquiries come out of the, the stuff from the six and the reauthorization of of um, of federal agencies to do this kind of counterterrorism stuff. The issue is this: this actually is a sign of the of the militarization that 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 had been priorly legitimately kind of limited to leftists and minorities. Um, and in the late eighties and nineties, that really does begin to change. It really begins to apply to everybody. The federal government has a problem. Well, you had the you had the what the the Silent Brotherhood, the Bruder Schweigen in the 1980s. Um, I think there was some monitoring in the... Well, there was like the Atlanta Olympic bombings. There was the yeah. Timothy Met Bay stuff. There was but, a but lot we, of issues. But... What, what I was going to say, even going back to like the 1960s, there were there were feds monitoring uh, like the farthest sort of right groups. Well, like... yeah, COINTELPRO the, the also went yeah, after Yeah, they, the they went after Party. like uh, the Minutemen group, not the Minutemen that we know from the 2000s, but the Minutemen from the 60s, which is like a far-right right anti-communist group. They did right. sort of monitor them, but it, it was always, I think there was a lot more attention put on the left at that time. And then that changes in the 80s. Right, I mean, the, the, the two groups that got a lot of Fed monitoring before the 80s is the Klan and the American Nazi Party. Um which is hard to feel bad about. I mean, and and the fact that there wasn't the same kind of of uh, aggression that you saw being used 
there was some of it actually with the American Nazi Party, but not with the Klan. They did not go after the Klan the way they the way they went after, say, the Panthers. Um, but you do see that change. You um, also have this in the context of like the hysteria around the Clinton election. Um, so there's, there is a weird political climate in all this, but what's interesting is we, even at the time, I remember when I was in high school, this was often spoken about um, kind of very close to the the Atlanta Olympic attempted bombing and the and the McVeigh bombing right um but it's really of a completely different character like we don't have no one's ever accused them of like planning a a a planned terrorist attack like that although domestic terrorism charges they get involved so Did you want to add anything to that, uh, Freddie? Yeah, I know. I, I think that that's all. Uh, it's all well said. I, you know, um, I, I think it's important to like to understand like the, the '90s context is really important here because it was a period of time in which many Americans had convinced themselves that, um, well, you know, the end of history had happened, right? Like the uh, the, the Soviet Union had fallen. There was widespread perception that capitalism had won the Great War. Um, it was a period of not of actual peace, right? The United States was doing a lot of, you know, shady shit behind the scenes. But in terms of frontline head, uh, you know, headline news, front page headline news, you had at the very beginning of the decade, a month long, you know, desert storm war. And other, other than that, like, you know, you can you can make a credible case that the American people saw it as a decade of peace. It was unprecedented economic growth. Um, and it just sort of seemed like, you know, the good times are here again. And um, and I think that uh, this, this sort of sense of like the threat coming from inside the house, right? Like the, the this, this sense of like, oh, you know, everything's going so good, but in the backwoods, these crazies, these white crazies, militia crazies, are you know ginning up some um, some problems, and then you, have, you know Waco happens, and Oklahoma City happens, um, and so there's a sense that like um, you know the the sort of placid facade of that era sort of makes this sort of domestic terrorism or domestic uh, violent incidents appear to be more um, sort of far-reaching than they were. I mean that you know well there's also the other side of that is uh, you know th thinking of George Floyd and whatnot. I mean the People forget the 90s was also the decade of, of Rodney King and the L.A. riots, right? right. So you had all this uh, – the, the stuff we see people getting riled up about today is a lot of the same stuff we saw back then too. Well, I mean effectively because it was frozen during the Bush war on terror. Like during the Bush war on terror, we didn't bring up any of this stuff. Like it all sort of faded to the background for a decade. Um, and probably – I mean I don't remember – it really didn't – when you think about, for example, uh, what you saw going on in the late 90s with um, the battle for Seattle, uh, which rhymes with Occupy and all that, it really did seem like, and I remember it feeling that way at the time, even when I was in college, like because of 9-11, all the culture war stuff was flipped, frozen, and reversed. So like complaining about PC culture gone amok, which becomes complaining about call-out culture is to complain about council culture, um, which 
is its own kind of niche problem. I mean, I'm not even going to like say that there aren't issues around that. Um, but that was frozen for like eight years because the conservatives were the people doing the counseling and the reason why they were doing it was related to the war on terror. But, I, and, it, and I mean, like, I think it's important to say, like, again, like I just said, you know, the, the, the threat is coming from inside the house sort of thing. Um, one of the big immediate narratives of 9-11 was that, um, we no longer should deal with this absurd leftist thought that like the United States is the, is the evildoer. We are clearly the sort of righteous sword in the world. And we all have to mobilize and come together as one against the evil terrorists. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember who it was and I'm, I'm racking my brain, but there was a very prominent columnist um, who, who wrote, um, you know, in the immediate aftermath of September 11th, we have seen the enemy and it is not us. Right. And it's like, there was this big sense of like, I'm sick of all this lefty stuff about how the United States does all these terrible things in the world, which I find really funny because it's not like the nineties were particularly like conscious of uh, conscious of American uh, misdeeds abroad, but that was like, you know, and so I think like seeing domestic terrorism as a big problem ran contrary to just the sense in which we wanted to be absolved and we wanted to see ourselves as righteous Avengers rather than as like, you know, the bad guys. So Derek, you may know more about this than me, but uh, do you think, and, and either of you can comment on this, but, um, and we'll get back to Ruby Ridge, but we sort of have incidents that rhyme with Ruby Ridge since then. Um, the ones I know about are um, Ed and Elaine Brown, who were tax protesters. I believe that ended without, you know, really a violent incident. And then there was the Bundy Ranch stuff. Do you think uh, federal agencies learned anything from this uh, particular incident of Ruby Ridge? I think they did for a while, um, actually. One of the things that you can learn from Ruby Ridge is uh, don't go in guns blazing. I believe it or not, all the de-escalation talk actually fucking works. Well, don't, because... don't go in with all guns blazing, especially with people that think the Queen of Babylon is coming and the apocalypse is here. Right, and who have a lot of guns, and who you know have a lot of guns because you may have sold it to them. Um, you... <laughs> but... I, I mean, that's the other thing in this. Uh, can you really blame Randy Weaver for uh, like when, when Randy Weaver says when, when they say, oh, well, now you're going to be an informant for us. And he basically just says, no, fuck you. Like, I, I can I can hardly blame him after they try to entrap him for saying, no, fuck you. <laughs> so. I mean, I think it's important to say, like, again, like Randy Weaver was brought in on gun charge, which. You know, he owned a firearm legally, he modified it illegally, and then he sold it. Um, which again, like, I mean, that's, it is against the law, but... Um, but would he have done it without that encouragement? Well, that's, that's, the, that's the question. Like, is, you know, is he going to sell it without the, the this, you know, this informant uh, trying to get him to do it? To me, the bigger thing, though, is like, that invites the ATF into the picture. And in both Ruby Ridge and ATF, Ruby Ridge and Waco, you know, the ATF comes out looking awful, that they were this, this violence accelerant force that uh, uh, was reckless and that was pushing, um, uh, always pushing the envelope and trying to bring more violence to bear in the situation. And uh, uh, several FBI agents um, have said, uh, you know, that uh, the ATF, uh, particularly in Waco, where they just uh, they accelerated the conflict dramatically for almost no reason. I mean, you had kids burned alive, basically, yeah. in it. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a, an FBI hostage negotiator who put out a book a while back. And I, I think, if I remember correctly, one of the, the suggestions in his book is that, like, the ATF doesn't do a lot of, fi of fighting, but it's staffed with people who are, like, tough guys who want to do shooting 
And so when they got these rare opportunities, they were just re- you know raring to go and, and wanting to get into into gunfights. The ATF felt a lot in the 90s the way we talk about the Border Patrol being now, which is like where you put the the testosterone added, addled, you know, gun, gun-toting people who may or may not be um, loyal to the rest of the secu- the executive security apparatus, actually. And it's it's interesting because one of the things that does come out of all the documents after they, I mean, what they try to charge them with initially is kind of crazy um, because they try to charge uh, what Harris and Randy with murder uh, of the, of the officer, even though no one ever proved that either one of those men are the people who shot. In fact, it does seem like the likelihood of the person who shot the first officer was, was Sammy, the 14 year old boy. Um, who is dead uh, at this point um, and who we have no idea like do we did the I've never really gotten a sense that if he even knew totally knew who was shooting back at um, which doesn't really make it okay he shouldn't have been shooting but like it also but it, makes... it, it was it, I think it was that's what I was trying to get at earlier when I was saying like <sighs> I'm not trying to be sympathetic to Weaver, but they have this very apocalyptic mindset, at, at least from what I've seen of the documentaries and all the, the books. And it's like, shouldn't the ATF know how to deal with people and de-escalate situations with people that have a mindset that they are under siege by, you know, the apocalyptic, uh, tyrannical state that is coming after them? Uh, it, it seems like, you know, you have to understand how someone like Sammy is going to react when his dog is shot or how Randy Weaver is going to react uh, when you try to entrap him with this sawed off shotgun stuff. But go, go on, Derek. I'm sorry. I mean, what's interesting to me is, like, we also don't hear about the Weavers very much after this other than their lawsuits. Like, they pretty much, um, the daughters become born, uh, the daughters become born again questions, and, which I kind of thought they already were, but I guess they moved to a more mainstream born again Christian sect. And Randy sort of fades from history after winning a bunch of uh, lawsuits against the Feds. Um after though, after they try to charge him uh, with 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 all kinds of things, um, I mean, I think what, it's I think it's important to say like the only one on which he was convicted was the original weapons charge, original bullshit weapons charge, right? He's acquitted of everything that happens related to the siege and the shooting, uh, which is you know, I just think a funny quirk of history. Yeah, he's not just acquitted. I mean, he went, he he what won like four hundred thousand dollars almost from the from the feds. I think, uh, and I I thought it was interesting what he said when he won that lawsuit. You know, this may have just been for PR purposes, but he said like, "Oh, I guess the country does work after all. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes there is justice." But go on. Well, yeah, it, it's it's uh. He does get quiet after that, though. Yeah, he's quiet. You don't hear about him. You don't. His daughters become born again Christians and kind of, you know, I think they're all still around. Um, it, but it is interesting because we normally the left understands blowback. And I'm not going to say that everything that that this does kind of create a feedback loop, because in, in trying to go after domestic terrorism, they also create the conditions that that justify it. Like if you read, if you read McVeigh and Nichols, this is this and Waco are the turning points for why they become 
radicalized and why they start looking into more white supremacist adjacent things. I and mean, one of the things I would say about uh, about a lot of these separatist movements is they weren't all white supremacists. And I think I think I think there is an over tendency now to slam all that uh, white supremacy. I think there's an over tendency to slam current QAnon stuff of white supremacy. I, I think we're going to see a lot more people of color in those movements even over time. But they was adjacent. Like they, they're could they're pretty close, particularly in the in the Pacific Northwest. And I, you know, um, there's a reason why like Portland is the land of weird battles between um, fascioids and and anarchists. It's because apparently that's just where they go to retire um, at 35. But so, sorry. I'm, no, no, no. Go on. If you were going to add something there. Uh, but it. it it's and so I get why people link it together, particularly with Idaho. There's so much. There is a lot of the the both um, both versions of the order. I think we're out of Idaho, so the Silent Brotherhood and then the Silent Brotherhood, like Part Two, the Order Two or whatever, both come out of Idaho, and we sort of then move to focusing on the Michigan and uh, Montana. It's, but it does seem like a blowback. It seems like this actually accelerates the very thing that it's supposed to be tamping down on. Yeah, I mean, really... don't you uh, do, do you guys think that the I mean, like I said, my sort of view is and I guess this is a weird view for some people, especially some of the liberals I know now. To me, it's the job of the if the federal agents are going to come in and do this with either Waco or Ruby Ridge. To me, the first thing should be we don't want there to be casualties. We want to avoid uh, you know, a violent end to all of this. And if you don't understand that the people you're dealing with have a certain, you know, uh, anti-government mindset, you're not going to be able to de-escalate the situation. And that for me is the key to all this. I just think to myself, how could you, how could these federal agents come into this and not think about the mindset that the people they're dealing with had? I mean, I, I don't think they cared, but... <laughs> Like, I mean, like we said, like, I just think that the macho, you can't undersell the, the macho element here, right? Like just the, the, um, the, the simple interpersonal sense that, uh, you know, the people who make up these agencies are often people who um, are attracted to the idea of, of committing state sanctioned violence, who uh, like to lord their power over other people, right? I, like, I don't think they're too concerned about diplomacy, I think right, is what yeah. we're all getting at. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um I, you know, by the way, did either of you guys see the the, the Waco uh, miniseries, the, the dramatized miniseries from a couple of years ago? I didn't get to see the Waco miniseries. I recently, uh, I saw the, the Siege of Ruby Ridge television film mm. a few years back that had, uh, I think Kirsten Dunst was Sarah Weaver and, uh, what was it, Randy Quaid played Randy Weaver. But uh, mm. I have yeah. not seen the Waco miniseries. Tell the... me. Yeah, it's just I thought it was well made. Um, it's based on the a book by a guy who was inside uh, the Branch Davidians, um, and so it's his perspective on what happened. Um, uh, Taylor Kitsch plays um, David Koresh and is really really good in it. Um, the thing that I thought was really interesting was that it was sort of stunningly sympathetic to the Branch Davidians and to David Koresh in particular. 
Uh, not coincidentally, it really downplays his child bride thing, which I think is the most sort of directly, you know, uh, un, un, uh, inexcusable thing about him. But anyway, just to connect this back to what I, what I was thinking about it is just, um, you know, they sort of, uh, one of the things that the miniseries underlines is like the fundamental compatibility, incompatibility between like, you know, the rule bound sort of proceduralism of law enforcement who says like, okay, you got to do this because this is the law, you know, and our laws say a reign or whatever. And, you know, someone like David Koresh, who is this, who thought he was the Messiah uh, and who, uh, you know, takes sort of um, uh, his cues in his mind from like God, right? And so like the sort of oh, I've got a warrant for your arrest is never going to be particularly meaningful to a guy like that because right. to him, he's, you know, he is the instrument of a higher power than the, the law. Derek, do you want to add to that? And also I mean, I, a, a question that I, well, go on first. Yeah. No, it's something that I think about a lot in regards to this because it's something that I think that we can all be tempted to be inconsistent on. Like uh, we think about like, January 6th and that that cluster right the, the cops that handled it best were the cops that did that did things that were de-escalatory and frankly kind of tricky you know you think about the guy who was guiding people all throughout the building so that they were just not coming anywhere where they'd be in contact with anyone but also that stopped a lot of potential violence in both directions you know I mean that that cop saved lives and I think about stuff like this because I'm like you're not going to be able to outfire these people think they're going to be hard to negotiate with too i mean i think we have to admit that but these people think you know particularly in the religious terms and that's something that we have to like acknowledge in these two groups it's different than a lot of the other white nationalist groups these are religious religiously motivated people um who have no reason to trust the federal government and have every reason to believe um if they actually believe what they say that um uh, God's on their side. So you have to, if you come in firing, they're likely to escalate back. Um, and I mean, that's not just true for, you know, so what I, I, I will know, what I think we'll hear about this is, you know, you'll hear people screaming immediately, like, this is white privilege. But I also think about when you deal with non, with like foreign religious terrorist groups, and I use religious and terrorist in quotation marks, because I really wish we would stop treating terrorism as a separate category of special law. And, and you know, um, I, I think that's been a mistake across the board. Um, but uh, the same rules apply. If you escalate with them, the blowback is usually more extreme. Um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't be like, you shouldn't be criminally harsh when they've actually done things that are wrong or illegal, or if they're actually stockpiling guns or whatever. But you, you can't, if you think you can go in, if you really think they have the guns that you're accusing them of having, particularly in the case of Waco, right? Going in and escalating that means that you know, you're knowingly going into making what was a weird but fairly peaceful situation into an active war zone. Like, and, and that's, that's just military calculus. And it makes me think about the fact that we often militarize the police, but they don't, they actually don't have a military mindset. They have a they have, uh, how do I say this? Um, they, they have, 
in my mind, they have an often, you know, they have a police mindset, which is which is that, you know, they are they have authority and there's no there is no risk to them in the same way, nor should there be. And this does lead to a lot of a unnecessary death and b a lot of unnecessary escalation. That's the that that's what I was getting at earlier, too, with I mean, the, the thing that gets me upset with Waco and Ruby Ridge, I agree when people say it's hard to negotiate with either the Weavers or the Branch Davidians. I can get why that would be hard to negotiate. But I, I like simply if you're going to work for the ATF, you're going to work for a federal agency or if you're going to work for police even, um, you know, uh, de-escalation should always be the first thing in mind. And, you know, you should be seeking to minimize any kind of casualties. And to me, that's why what happened with Ruby Ridge is unacceptable. Do you want to add to that, uh, Freddie? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we're just like, and this is one of the things like, you know, I am not a defund the police guy, right? I think that this does very clearly a, a huge political loser, even with the constituencies that we generally associate with liberalism and the left. Um, and I don't know how it would work. And I mean, I think that people have correctly pointed out that what you actually get in a world like that is like um, the privatization of police functions where rich people just start to employ private security, uh, you know, anyway. But I mean, there is just this issue with like inherent to policing, right, is that it appears to be a... um, uh, uh, inducement. I mean, it's a, it's attractive to guys who want to crack skulls, right? Like people who have that um, mindset, who are uh, who like to impose authority on other people, and it's not surprising that so many of them end up being sadistic, right, and end up being cruel. I was I was going to add to that. There was um, there was a book I was reading a while back, uh, written by one of the original detectives on the. East Area Rapist, uh, Golden State Killer. Um, I think he was called also the original Night Stalker, that serial killer, um, serial rapist case. And at the beginning of the book, he's talking about uh, the first call-in he gets. Uh, and it's he mentions that it's during the, uh, I think, these Latino riots that were happening around the same time. And he's just in his car waiting for someone to call because he wants the adrenaline rush of something to happen. And he wants to beat a guy down. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's almost as crazy as the people he wants to arrest. Um, there's a, uh, a wonderful uh, narrative, a uh, true story, apparently, um, from a guy. I can't remember his name, but um, he was an Aikido master, a, a white guy who moved to Japan and who studied Aikido for six hours a day for like 11 years or something like that. And, um, and this was in, I think, the, the, the mid-1960s when this happens. And um, he was on a commuter train um, uh, and uh, a drunk guy came on and was acting aggressively with other with other uh, people on the train. And he tells the story about how, like, you know, he just lit up inside because he had been doing this combat training uh, for years. But, you know, his masters were always saying, like, you know, um, the whole point of Aikido is to prevent violence and that, you know, uh, the... Uh, de-escalation is is the ultimate goal for anything and blah, 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 blah. But he wanted to be righteous in combat. 
and he's about to like. Well, he, you know, he had the sort of machismo that you were talking about earlier. Right. Yeah, he has got that that sort of thing in him, despite the fact that he was being trained in a martial art that maybe many martial arts stress the importance of nonviolence and trying to avoid violence. But Aikido is especially uh, central in its notion that like you, if you if you get into a physical confrontation, there's a sense in which you've already lost, and yet he still wanted to get into this righteous violence. What ends up happening is that an elderly Japanese man. Um, just starts talking to the drunk guy before he can start fighting him. And he, uh, within uh, a minute, the drunk guy is uh, leaning against the old Japanese man's uh, shoulder and sobbing. Uh, and he says, you know, like that, th- that is what the point of all of it actually is. Right. Um, and there's just something about, uh, you know, the appeal of being the person who meets out righteous violence. I mean, I think it's a big part of video game culture too. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was just going to add to that, too. I, I mean, people get very uncomfortable with this whole topic that we're getting into here. But I mean, all, all I'm really saying is I'm not saying like a cop is uh, the same as, you know, the, the people he's arresting. But there there is, I think, a certain type of person that often wants to go into policing or wants to become an ATF agent, et cetera, et cetera, that has a sort of mentality of like, I want them to try to throw a punch because I want to show them who the alpha is, you know, that sort of machismo that we're talking about. And I think that becomes a problem um, in events like Ruby Ridge. But Derek, do you want to add to that? Well, it's interesting, right? Because um, my, my, uh, my experience with prisons, um, (laughs) which is an interesting way for a teacher to open up a conversation. Right. But my experience with prisons, because uh, I briefly worked as a guard. My mom was a prison nurse for a, a bunch of years, and m- many members of my family have been on both ends of the the, the legal stick, um, both in terms of having been um, enforcement officers and sometimes and in forms of being in prison. Um, I think there is actually a sense in which it is true that it is, it's the same kind of person who is attracted to being a police that is often attracted to other forms of criminal activity. Um, and if you really ask people about it, um, you know, and I've known plenty of cops in my life, they will, they, they'll kind of be honest with you that they'll usually have, but, but for the grace of God, go, I, because, you know, I got on the, I, I now get to beat people up on the right side of the law instead of the wrong side of it, basically. Um, there are different jobs though. It handle it's different ways. Okay. So as a prison guard, we have a lot of the same machismo problems. There's a lot of abuse. There really is. But it doesn't tend to be the same kind you see with cops because we don't have guns, um, at least not on the floor. We might in the towers, but like, yeah, are we, you know, I say, me as if I'm still one, I haven't been, I haven't been involved in this in 20 years. But um, if you're super aggressive with, um, with uh, prisoners, you probably won't make it very long. Um, I mean, it's not like you're going to get killed, but y- y- you'll be run out. Um, whereas um, with cops, the the gun equation really does change things quite dramatically. And with federal agents, it's quite interesting depending on what department they're in. If you've ever like studied COINTELPRO, I will say this about the FBI. It was rare for them to directly kill, uh, kill people in COINTELPRO operations. It was very common for them to turn it over to local police and local police go fucking crazy. Um, And it was also common for the, it also seems to have been in the 90s, common for the ATF to overstep bounds. That's one of the things that seems to have come up over and over again. 
And again, like I said, if you hear about this now, the organization you hear the most about this was when like Trump was deploying the border guard because they're known to do the same thing. Um, so it's not just that you have this with, with cops in general, which I totally think you do. You, there's also agencies with this reputation versus agencies that don't have it. Um, and I don't want to sound like I'm an apologist for the FBI because the FBI is yeah, but um, the FBI tends to play in soft power. And when, when they write, when they, they're, they do see the FBI itself is one of the biggest critics of what happens at Ruby Ridge with the other federal agencies. So getting back to Ruby Ridge and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, Freddie, um, it seems to me that uh, the big turning point to what sort of brings everything down and de-escalates is Colonel Bo Gritz, who's associated with the militia movement, comes in. He's sort of known as a, a war hero and whatnot. Uh, became associated with Ross Perot, but he he sort of has his own uh, associations with this sort of far right militia world. But he basically comes in and gets Randy Weaver to you know give up essentially, and uh, it's very odd because I I you know it's weird to see the the person who is associated with far right militia movement stuff being the guy that actually actually is able to deescalate the whole situation. Yeah, I think I think that that's I think he, he plays a key role. I think the death of Vicky um, Weaver, I think, was deeply demoralizing. And, um, and let let's be honest here. I mean, if people don't get that's really horrifying to even think about right. this woman getting shot while she's holding her baby. So right. I want people to keep that in mind. But go on, Freddie. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, but I do think that one thing that we should add and people should understand is they were running out of food. Like, I think that um, it's, we shouldn't underplay in terms of the sort of the order of events and where things happened. I mean, um, one of the things that's described in, in some of the, the sources is, um, so when, you know, the, the, the marshals deliberately try to attra attract the dog uh, by making noise, the, I, I don't think the government ever disputed that. Um, the dog runs out. Part of the reason why the uh, uh, Randy... Uh, Kevin Harris uh, and Sammy um, follow the dog so quickly with guns is because um, they were hoping that it was like a game animal, like a deer or something that had gotten the dog's attention because they were out of meat and they were rapidly running out of food in general. And so, um, you know, like that's an element here. It's just like, you know, just the, the, this hunger and you're literally surrounded by uh, more law enforcement officers than you've ever seen. It must be, hard not to give up at that point. What what other facts in the case, Freddie? Because I, I know we've been going all over the place with a more broad discussion generally, but what are the biggest facts that you think people need to understand about Ruby Ridge? And I guess more importantly, why does it matter um, today? Because I, I think people have forgotten about Ruby Ridge. I mean, I think one really big thing um, is that um, the, the, the sniper, no matter what, the individual sniper, um, deserves um, a great deal of criticism for f essentially firing blindly into a house that he knew had children inside of it. Um, but uh, it's also true that he was operating under um, uh, orders that had been drawn up, uh, a, a sort of rules of engagement that had been drawn up um, that were probably un unconstitutional. Um, and they included very broad language about um, yeah, if if the officers saw one of the weavers with a weapon and they felt that that could potentially become a violent scenario, they could shoot to kill. 
Um, and generally, uh, you know, a lethal force is authorized uh, only in very specific circumstances where uh, the officers are protecting their own lives or they're stopping a crime from immediately happening, a violent crime from immediately happening. And so like, you know, uh, it's not, I think it's important to say like, this was not just like, a crazy scenario where a lot of shit went down all of a sudden and you know it was chaos and bad things happened there was forethought and planning that went into this that was premeditated it was premeditated yeah and it, they created a scenario where uh, a tragedy was almost uh, inevitable derek would I, you agree with that assessment yeah and i i think it was i mean it was a forerunner for what we were going to do to general law enforcement throughout the 90s and we're still dealing with today because you know <laughs> I often ironically call it a status of forces agreement because I because I lived abroad for so much and occasionally would have to deal with U.S. military. And then I think about this kind of how um, I often think about the way we treat the cops and the way the cops treat us is that it's basically an occupying force. Um, uh, the uh, the issue I would say is that during the 90s, there is an expansion of the ability of police officers to use lethal force to the suspicion of having a gun. And it kind of begins around this, this period is where it really accelerates. And this is part of the acceleration and it's weird because it should have been, it, 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 should, have been, it should have been the opposite. And um, it, it's something that I really worry about right now um, a little bit because we've started talking about domestic terrorism again. And even people in the DSA have sanctioned this language um, and they talk about the radicalization of white men, et cetera. Now, I, I have to be honest, I, I, I can see where this is a, a serious problem. I'm not denying that in any way, form or fashion, but I think if you... Uh, if you don't deal, I, I think if you don't deal with this issue carefully, you can create more It's, it's a issue. Yeah. If you actually can create the problem, you can accelerate the problem that, you, that you're trying to fight. Well, that, that's um, that's one thing I wanted to mention real quick is uh, at the end of the PBS documentary, American Experience Ruby Ridge, which I believe is still on YouTube. You can still get it on PBS, uh, their website. But I remember at the end, you know, they have the footage of what happens when the standoff ends and you have the sort of uh, anti-government militia types and white nationalists. They're about to leave. And, you know, they're interviewing feds, too, um, about this the aftermath of the standoff and the feds are saying they didn't care. They didn't care about, you know, the weavers dying and all this stuff. And then, you know, you also see, I think at one point, uh, one of these militia types say, well, this is great. We got a martyr on our hands. (laughs) You know, in a way, this was a gift to the very far right militia movement that supposedly we were trying to fight. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. And I think if you're going to do if you're going if you're concerned about dealing with the radicalization of of parts of the right, particularly in the age, particularly in the age of QAnon, because the QAnon is a quasi religious movement, um, which we you know, it doesn't have the same feeling as some of these other uh movements because it's so random but it is it it it, you know there's messianic overtones to it it's dealing with the the old and isolated etc and so forth you're going to have to approach it at least until you have shots fired you know unprovoked um 
as like a diplomatic problem. Um, and I think you have to learn from employing former element, like former members of the militia movement, this, that, and the other, and not this idea that, well, maybe we all know that the cops suck and the cut and, and, gov and government force is bad, but in this one instance, those other people are so scary and they're really the same people as the cops anyway, so we should, we should do this and I think that's a very bad scenario. Luckily, I, I, I do think most people understand that, but you have to, you have to remind people that you can't like compartmentalize um, your battle against the police and the battle against white supremacists because you'll hear stories about how, oh, there's white supremacists and the police, if so facto, they're the same thing and we need to fight them in the, you know, in the, in the same ways or maybe you use the police to fight i don't know i the way you, you have to really think about it strategically because you don't want the blowback you really don't you really shouldn't want unjust ends like you should not want you don't want to create a situation where a bunch of people who would probably like to be left alone in the woods frankly um see see you as the number one enemy and well, I mean, let's be honest here, too. I mean, as I said at the beginning, even, in, you know, I wouldn't want to live next to Randy Weaver. I'm just straight up. I would not want to. This, I, I don't think I'd, I'd get along well with the Weavers. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that justifies uh, Sammy Weaver, Vicky Weaver and their dog Striker dying. <laughs> But I mean, I think to me, like this is t taps into a really broad cultural thing right now, uh, which is to me, and I don't think this is just purely a left phenomenon. Um, there's an addiction to moral simplicity, um, I think, in the way that we see the world. Uh, it, everyone has to be cast as either a hero or a villain. Um, so like we mentioned George Floyd, right? Um, like the fact that George Floyd had fentanyl in his system, right? Um, the, the the medical examiner and a bunch of medical examiners says that it did not contribute to his death. It was not the cause of his death, and I believe them. But um, because taking fentanyl is perceived by people to be like a low class or criminal thing, um, a lot of a lot of people rush to say that's ju just that's not true. And I mean, it, it is true. Like we know how to do a toxicology uh, report, and it was in his system, right? Um, but so it, it, it's he can't just be a vic a victim. He has to be a perfect victim or another thing that's like recently you know there was last year there was this the central park karen story where a woman a white woman and a uh, w walking her dog off leash and a black birder um got into a conflict and she called the cops on him which was not a cool thing to do um but she wasn't became, it what, did, they both had the same last name i think it was like christian amy, cooper and amy, amy cooper and, yeah amy and christian cooper and um and she uh was fired from her job from her job they took her, her took her dog away she had to flee the country she received an avalanche of vile you know death threats and things like that and i think even christian cooper spoke out against that oddly enough yes he did um and uh uh, he refused to participate in the absurd uh, uh, criminal uh, charges that were brought against her, um, which were quietly dropped afterwards because, uh, you know, the moment was over. So the DA didn't feel like they had to do that anymore. But, you know, recently there was more reporting on it. Amy Cooper was given her chance to give, to tell her side of the story. It cast her in a somewhat more sympathetic light. But people reacted really uh, just with rage that this report, new reporting had happened because, you um, you know, 
it, the situation cannot be that a couple of people um, both behaved a little bit badly. This woman behaved worse because she did, you know, try to call the cops on someone when it wasn't appropriate to do so. But where she's not like this world's worst monster figure, she's a, a person who made a mistake and could probably do some growing and learning. But like, that's not an option that's available to us, right? It has to be, you are perfectly morally clean um, or you're not. And so situations like Ruby Ridge can't be processed because the people are unattractive in some ways, even right. while they absolutely were victims. That That's why, you know, I, I even, in a way, I hate having to say uh, throughout this discussion, because I know people are listening, you know, uh, or they're going to be listening to this podcast. I hate having to say, well, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I want to live next to the Weavers. Like, I shouldn't have to really say that. I mean, it was, you know. All this death is bad either way. It doesn't matter if Randy Weaver was a good guy. And I, I, in a lot of ways, I don't understand why people can't process that. But I think it is going into what you're saying. Um, why do you think that is, though, Freddie, that we have this situation where people can't process this kind of thing? I mean, I just think that, like, I mean, one of the things I think is that, um, in you know, we talk about right now, like, that the left or liberals or whatever is just in this radical moment with Black Lives Matter and Me Too and all this stuff, and that, you know, there's all this social change. But I think that the, rea I think the real thing is that I think in many ways liberals have given up. I think that um, many of these movements betray a culture of people who um, don't believe that they're capable of making change in the world, which is why they're so hyper-focused on, like, symbolism and linguistic things the, the big thing i always see now is like that what you consume you know uh, consumption right. as like a form of activism which right. uh, that horrifies me but maybe i'm too old school like 90s left i don't know well, no that's exactly right right like the shows that you watch and that you tell people loudly on twitter that you watch are supposed to constitute part of this political identity and i think what this comes down to is people feel like they can't change the world but they feel like they can judge, right? And, they, and so they get up in the morning and they judge. And there's just an immense number of people on social media who get up every morning and they just look for the person to be mad at today because they can't, they feel like they feel completely disempowered in the world, but at least they have their judgments. And so if you introduce this idea of moral complexity, if you say, hey, actually everyone's got some good and some bad situations are often very complex. There's not really black and white uh, answers to any of these questions. Um, it reduces their ability to judge. And so you're cutting out the legs of the only thing that they sort of think they they can interact with politics at all i wanted to add to that um and then i'll give it to derek but um I, you know in a way i know there's a lot of discussion about cancel culture and and uh free speech and all this stuff and political speech in particular uh but some people who criticize the idea of cancel culture will say uh we have so much political speech today you you can say what you want on twitter etc 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 um in a way i almost i i sort of agree with them i I think, you know, people have a lot of voice now. They can say, hey, uh, I don't like this person. I'm going to boycott their work. Uh, you should boycott their work, too. Uh, but they really don't have any power to change anything. Uh, and that's sort of, I think, tying into what you're saying, Freddie, a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's um, like canceling, I think, is the perfect example, right? Canceling is an obsession, is both a positive obsession with people who do it and a negative obsession with people who critique it. Um, but canceling is powerless, right? Like, if you actually look like, yes, there have, are, are some individual lives that have been badly uh, damaged by canceling, but most people survive a cancellation and come out just fine in the long run. And th these are all individuals for what the left acknowledges are structural problems, right? I mean, one of the very weird things about 
you know, the way we approach race, politics, or, or uh, feminism, or whatever right now is um, the, the, the rhetoric and the, the philosophy is that um, these are structural problems. They're not individual problems, but they're problems that sort of baked into the structure of society. And yet these approaches to dealing with them, cancellation, can only if affect individuals. So your own philosophy should tell you it's not going to work. Do you want to add to that at all, Derek? Yeah, I have a lot of, of thoughts about it. One thing I, the, there's a there's a couple of things I think play into it. The, the decline of public institutions and the ability of public institutions to do anything, but that I don't mean the state. And when, when people, there's, there's this automatic association of public institution with state. Part of that is capitalist atom, atomization. Part of that is secularization, not all, sec, we haven't actually dealt with all the repercussions of secularization yet. And by secularization, I don't mean we all became new atheists overnight because frankly, that's probably never gonna happen. But what, what I do mean is religious institutions are deracinated. I mean, QAnon is actually a perfect example of this. QAnon and like, like weird religious institutions signing on to what is effectively a heretical conspiracy theory shows how little power they have socially. So, I mean, you know, the left feels powerless. I think, I think out the, the non-institutional right feels somewhat powerless too, which is also why you see them investing more and more in demagogic figure, figures and their own weird forms of cultural obsessions. Um, I also don't think this is particularly, I think this is a long time coming and it comes in cycles in, in, in the West. Um, in Europe and the United States, particularly in the United States, but since our media culture is global now through the internet, you can you can see you can see how this is re really is affecting Europe and other places um, in, in similar ways. I mean, you just see you see our narratives about things becoming part of the world narrative all the time. Um, and I think it's worrying because I think a perfect example of this actually is is, is the Biden administration. The last five years, we've seen all this nascent radicalization both in person and online and we have thought that that meant the center cannot hold not only can the center hold the center can seem to be more powerful than it's been in the last 20 years like and and so there's there's a way in which this impotent rate this impotent rage goes on to like quasi-social actions like canceling seems social because it takes multiple people to do it but a it doesn't a, except in the rare cases of people, usually people who aren't that guilty, it doesn't work. It's one of those weird things where the effectiveness is actually usually uh, of a declining ratio to how guilty the person is. And if you're really guilty of it, um, you can make a career out of it. So, you know, there's that. Um, but it's also this weird thing where we, where it seems like we all have schizophrenia around how we talk about the state. And that also, it's a left issue, but it isn't just a left issue. Like, Watching blue as my matter flag people fight cops in, in January 6th should have also been, you know, a showing. Well, everyone's a Napoleonite when they uh, when it benefits them, I guess. Well, in the reverse of what you just said, uh, the blue Lives matter people fighting cops was uh, there was a, an anti masking protest um, somewhere uh, and uh, uh, a bunch of anarchists came out 
to uh, fight the people who are anti-masking mandates. And so you had anarchists coming to fight to defend the government's right to impose a, a mandate on people, right? Which would seem to be the complete fucking opposite of anarchism. But this is, you know, there's, a, I just think that like, everything is denuded of principle that like we are, we have become such a tribe with everything is so intensely tribal that like you get into these positions where people would seem to be uh, sort of fighting directly against what their stated principles are, but it doesn't matter as long as uh, they are sort of on the right team. And it's just, it's so you get these bizarre scenarios all the time uh, where, for example, after a year of, at cab, right, of the cops are bastards of, you know, we need to defund the police, abolish the police, whatever. There's just outpouring of sympathy and support for the Capitol Police, who are still cops, right? Who are still cops who do cop things. But there's no attempt to reconcile the inherent contradiction there because it's, it's just who's on my team. You know, uh, before we close out, um, there were two more things I wanted to mention. And the first one, since we mentioned the cancel culture issue um sometimes i i think my views get very complicated with it and i wanted to get your opinion on this freddie because um i think some people will say that even saying maybe you should boycott this person's products uh well i'll give an example uh you know there's bands out there in the metal and like neo-folk and these experimental music scenes that i think you can legitimately say are you know kind of they're far right wing Nazis, neo Nazis. Uh, and I would say it's okay to boycott their work because you don't really want to give them material support that can then go into, you know, the the broader movement, these groups like Combat 18 and whatnot. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, I think people have a right to say, hey, maybe you should think about boycotting this band um, because to me, that's freedom of association. Uh, would you agree with that sort of sentiment that? I think some forms of, you know, quote unquote canceling, if it's like boycotting something, I think that can be a freedom of association thing. You don't want to associate with this uh, product or, or whatnot. But I, I just wanted your thoughts on that. Yeah, of course, I think that people have every right to not uh, consume something or listen to something if they don't want to. And that's not like some sort of toxic cancel culture. Um, the problem is never withdrawing your interest or support or uh, viewership or whatever from something you find objectionable. The problem is trying to prevent other people from making the opposite decision, right? So I think this has been forgotten. The cancel, in the, when people say, you know, she's canceled, he's canceled, that, that initially sprung from college campuses where a right-wing speaker or otherwise you know, considered objectionable speaker was scheduled to speak, and those events got canceled after uh, intense uh, liberal public protest of these things happening. And that's where the cancellation happened. And to me, you know, if you don't like uh, a, a speaker, don't go to listen to them. Uh, if you really don't like it, uh, stage a protest outside of the hall where it's happening. But when you when you you know obstruct someone else's ability to uh, to listen and to hear and to engage, that is crossing a different kind of line. I was just going to add to that. I mean, it's it's interesting because I think it gets weaponized uh, on both sides in a way where you know we had this sort of cancellation of Emily Wilder, the young AP reporter, a while back um, by uh, right wing uh, forces, uh, mainly people that went to Stanford with her that were young Republicans. Um, 
And that kind of thing actually worries me a great deal. I was wondering if you would want to comment on this general issue, I guess, uh, Derek. Um, I don't know. I know we've I, gone off topic a bit, but. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, and so some reason I feel like there's been more ink and air spent on council culture than I care about. But um, to, to talk about it a little bit, um, I, I tend to agree with Ben Burgess. Um, and I, I actually wish in his book, his most recent book, Counseling Comedians, he actually expanded on this point that this is part of American culture that is also exacerbated under capitalist conditions. Right. Can- Canceling comedians while the world burns, I think, right, is right, the whole title. Right. And and he mentions this. He actually in the book, he doesn't. He goes on to other topics. But I think this is I think this is a deep seated. It's become a deep seated part of our culture. I think it actually probably goes back to Puritans, um, but or maybe even just just a natural urge to shun that we all have as human beings and that our culture in Pacific has has emphasized. The thing that bugs me about it is that it continues this tribalization because it is clear to anybody with any uh, like non-tribal identity attachment that nobody is remotely consistent on criterion here and that you can almost use complaining about canceling the cancel people now which is also kind of a fascinating um development and it's not new i mean one of the things i would add to this is while it's gotten particularly bad now because of the internet um something like cancel culture debates have been going on since the fucking 60s um and it tends to it tends to come up about every eight years um the the, the reason why i think it's so much more per day, pervasive now is the, the the amount of young people who go to college has increased from like 30 to 60 percent and i don't think that that means that they've all become college liberal lefties or whatever what i do think that means though is they've all been exposed to that type of culturalism and that has affected social media culture profoundly even for the people who do not go to college because if you look at where all of our terms for this come from initially it came out of like really watered down blog posts about critical theory that then get glommed onto specific events canceling uh, speakers um, then, you know, also attaching it to the cancel Colbert incident, like in 2013, which is a, a really fascinating incident um, where everybody involved at the end of it looks bad. Um, so it's it, it's definitely a trend and it it worries me more when I see it in the context of talking about really bringing back a major focus on domestic terrorism one, because I will tell people this over and over and over again, and sometimes I'll get the response, well, they're going to go after the left anyway, so they might as well go after the right too. And I'm like, okay, that that may be true, but you don't want to establish yeah, but an what, legal apparatus around it. Well, right? that, But that's what I was saying. I, I, I wanted to say something real quick. Uh, there's an anti-fascist researcher who I, I respect a lot, Chipper Lay, and he's done a lot of work over the years. I think he was involved with the um, AFL-CIO. I could be wrong about that, but uh, – when I asked him the, the January 6th riots, and this was right after they happened, he said, I don't want people feeding everyone involved to the national security state. We should not be calling for people to be fed to the national security state apparatus. And I said, well, why? 
uh, because if you give more and more power to this apparatus, it becomes like a Leviathan and it goes after everyone, including the left. Um, and I don't think people take that issue seriously enough. Uh, I think it's important to say that uh, uh, Biden's, you know, Biden has been and his team have been preparing these proposals for evolutions in the approach to taking on, you know, domestic extremism. And um, and also socialists, I think, are included under that. Uh, yeah, there was that, an Intercept article about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, which is that within that there is uh, the identification of, of far left extremism, uh, because, of course, there is. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the government is never going to be. Uh, uh, friendly to far left extremists, and you know we've got the, you know people are going to rush through to support uh, these kind of overreaching uh, laws and these you know war on domestic extremism things, and they will inevitably come back to hurt people that they care about. And you you know you just look stupid when then after the fact you said, but I didn't I didn't want you to come after these guys. That's not how it works. Well, I, I think the other important thing is too. I mean, w- when you empower the sort of national security state enough, it goes after people that I don't even think can be called extremists. I mean, if you look at some of like the FBI files that Hoover had on people, I mean, they had freaking Tiny Tim. They have FBI files on Tiny Tim thinking he was a communist, the guy that did tiptoe through the tulips. And I mean, it's it's kind of scary to think about that, you know, we have a national security state that is so worried about extremism during the Cold War that it's going after people who are very clearly not extremists. <laughs> and I think we could face that again today. Derek, do you want to add to that? No, I think we're almost inevitably going to face it again today. I mean, um, I don't want to like sound alarmist, but um, if the socialists were, I don't mean a military threat or, or anything like that, just a, just a significant political threat, which, I mean, I don't have to tell people here that they're kind of not. But if they ever were, I think you could see something like what we saw 10, 15 years ago with the um, what uh, green is the new red scare, where they were going after environmental groups. Some of the you know, Earth some Liberation the Front, front yeah, yeah. Animal Liberation Front, um, some of which probably you know did do things that were illegal, um, but they were going after them with like uh, Patriot Act laws. <laughs> Um, well, that's that's the other thing I was going to mention. I wanted to get Freddie's take on this real quick. Uh, I don't know if either of you have read Trevor Aronson, who he mainly reports on uh, FBI entrapment cases. But, you know, during the war on terror, he was reporting all these cases, reams and reams of cases of, you know, informants basically trying to entrap and cause trouble at mosques, like encouraging, you know, terrorist behavior and, and jihadi sort of like thinking. And uh, it's weird to me that people can't make the connection and say that's no different than what they did with the Randy Weaver case. Uh, there was a recent case in Michigan where they kind of kidnapped the governor or was it the attorney general? But there were some, you know, far right militia type idiots who were had sort of a plan to do that. But it's been revealed that, like, the FBI essentially orchestrated the whole thing, which it had also done repeatedly with people that identified as Islamic ex- extremists, um, where, you know, they said, I mean, it's undoubtedly an entrapment, but like they literally create the scenario in which these people are then planning to do these violent acts. And it's like, you know, again, like I'm not an anti, I'm not a abolish the police, abolish the FBI kind of a guy, but it's like, um, 
I think the, often these guys are just like bored and trying to justify their salaries, right? And so like they 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 say we haven't had a big bust in a long time. We need to gin something up, and so they create crime. It's Taylorism when applied to crime, both federal and local. I mean, it's this is a well-known phenomenon. And yeah, when 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 you have stats, you got to keep up. And even if there's not crime, there's always crime. I mean, and whether it's like during, you know, check up people during the purges being told to find this many saboteurs, no matter what, or we have this many uh, subpoenas that need to go out or whatever, it's gonna, you know, people have to justify their job. Um, I mean, that bureaucratic drift is a real thing. And you combine that with, you combine that with, with police violence and you, you have some serious problems and I think I think the lesson I just we just need to keep on hitting the the state is a lot less ideological than you think it is. Like as far as like our conceptions of ideology, it'll swipe in all directions if it thinks it's kind of got means to. So the last thing I wanted to touch upon, and I, I know we went over time with this conversation. And I'm glad you guys stayed on. But um, so I live I live in everyone knows I live in Pittsburgh. Uh and, you know, if you were to go maybe an hour, hour and 45 minutes out of this city, you start getting into Pennsylvania Dutch territory, like Mennonite, Amish. You know, it's like going through uh, basically a time warp, right? So, um, you know, everyone's in carriages and stuff. And people are probably asking, well, what does this have to do with the Weaver thing? Um, I have known people that will say, you know, oh, these, these Pennsylvania Dutch and, you know, their kids don't end up well. So we should sick CPS on their kids. <laughs> And, you know, I, I look at guys like Rod Dreher at the American Conservative with his whole Benedict option thing, um, where he basically says, you know, uh, well, traditional Catholics should just go to somewhere in Montana and form their own little commune there. And to be honest, I don't have an issue with that. I really don't have an issue with the Pennsylvania Dutch either. And I don't think you can force people. Uh, you, you can't force them to associate uh, with the system. And I think that's a big problem I see at times is, you know, there will always be people, you know, even Bo Gritz has his little commune in Nevada. I don't think we can stop those people from dropping out. And, you know, it may be sad that their kids get sucked into it, but what can you do? And, you know, that's the sad thing about the, the Weaver stuff. I think their kids were, you know, probably indoctrinated into a cult-like mentality. But, you know, if these people want to drop out, you can't really stop them. I mean, I've been predicting for a long time that like the sort of liberal take on race and gender is so inherently and deeply pessimistic that um, we might see a return to the sort of separatism and, and commune forming uh, habits that were common during the 60s and 70s. Um, because like, if you believe that white supremacy is, uh, you know, totalizing and that it is advanced by all white people, regardless of their intentions, that it's baked into all the institutions, etc. If you have such a pessimistic view on that, um, participation in this society doesn't make a lot of sense. So maybe you you try to break off and form your own little thing. So maybe we'll, we'll see both right and left wing sort of, you know, separatism becoming these big, big things in the near future. Well, what scares me is the idea of like, uh, well, we can just go into all these little right-wing enclaves and we can like force them to stop being enclaves and i'm like what that, that that'll just end up like ruby ridge and waco again <laughs> so I, I mean if anyone wants to add to that uh any closing comments 
Derek, I'll let you go first, and then I, I want to give Freddie the, the final sort of uh, last words on this episode. Well, what I would say is I think we are going to see a lot, particularly as the effects of the great burnout um, start to wind through the system. We are going to see a lot more separatism because a lot of people, and I'm not just talking about the liberals who are super pessimistic. I mean, socialists too. A lot of people feel really pessimistic right now. They've been they've been encouraged since the '70s to form affinity groups. Um, I think that's almost inevitable that people are going to actually start to do it. And I do worry that um, it, that there's going to be a section of liberals who are kind of close to the leftists, actually, who also start encouraging the state to intervene across the board. Um, and I I, I think the uh, the faith in the social, you know, and that was a part of socialist, right? We were socialists, not nationalists for a reason. Um, I, I, I guess what I was trying to say, too, was I don't think the state can solve all these problems. No, I don't either. Yeah, yeah. But the faith in the social, not the state, the, the larger social apparatus is so degraded amongst so many different groups of people, left, right and center, that a lot of them are going to default to state mechanisms. And that's going to be a bigger problem. And that's all I really that's that's my you know, grim prediction. So, Freddie, I told you I was going to give you the final word. I've, I, I'm sorry if we didn't give you enough time to get into uh, the details of Ruby Ridge, but if there's anything you wanted to add to the discussion or anything we didn't cover with regards to Ruby Ridge, please uh, feel free to um, have final comment. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would just tie Ruby Ridge in with uh, the present moment in the sense that you feel like you have people whose political disagreements are such massive incompatibilities that like regular political process becomes impossible, right? That there is such a gulf between um, people in sort of their basic conceptions about what politics is and is for. Um, but the difference now is that I think that that was a fringe thing uh, with Ruby Ridge and with Waco and the whole you know militia movement. And now I think that it's the, the numbers of people on the conservative side who are sort of completely out there like QAnon people um, is vastly higher than it was before because the internet spreads that stuff. But also I think again, like you have a entire generation of young lefty people who um, have been taught that all the institutions are so deeply broken, so deeply racist, so deeply sexist, that the police can't be reformed, uh, that, uh, you know, just the, the, the all these institutions are, you know, reflect this, these deep injustices. And so you just have this widespread collapse in, you know, faith in the basic operating principles of the country. And I don't know where it goes. Like I said, you know, the 90s, I was talking about the 90s before, and look, I, you know, I have a, a huge number of problems with the 90s, right? That American peace and prosperity was actually at the, at the coming at the um, uh, expense of a lot of other people, including very poor people in the United States were kicked off welfare. Um, but like, there, you know, I would prefer a situation in which it did seem like there was at least some unity in belief in the country operating as it goes forward, because I don't know what the alternative is. But it seems that just like, the most basic level of faith in American institutions has degraded to such a point that like, we can't even begin to have a politics that interacts with each other. I would, I would just add to that. One of my biggest things with parallax uses, um, I think we're in a bad situation where the institutions, I don't think people trust them anymore. And I think that's in large part because the institutions have failed in, in a lot of their own ways and, and breed it distrust. But we have a situation now where, 
I mean, I don't know if if something like climate change, if you really consider that an issue, you have to be able to mobilize people across racial and class lines. And I don't think you can do that in America at this point, um, which really frightens me about the future. It seems like we're in for a, a real rough ride. So uh, I guess that is it for this conversation. Uh, Derek, how can people follow your work? And uh, Freddie, I'll let you uh, tell people how people can uh, follow your Substack. All right. Uh, you can follow me at Varnblog, which is at C Derek Varnblog on uh, YouTube. You can follow that same in audio form if you don't like dealing with silly streams um, by looking, putting Varnblog into your podcast of choice. You can also follow me on Mortal Science. However, Mortal Science is like commie 8,000 level stuff. For, for most people, I actually don't think it's a good introduction. Yeah, that's what I do. Uh, you can find me at uh, freddydebord.substack.com. Um, there's a free option to follow the mailing list, and I publish a lot, um, including a lot of stuff for free. If you do subscribe, uh, there's some, uh, some special content just for you. Um, and yeah, that's where you can find me and my work. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with C. Derek Vaughn and Freddie DeBar. As always, if you can, please, 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 please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Just released a new episode in the series on the covert history of George H.W. Bush with These Long Wars, the blogger otherwise known as TLW. That's available for $5 tier and up supporters. Also, there is a $100 tier if you're really, really generous. And there's even a $1 tier if you can't afford the $5 tier. Any amount will help. And of course, at the $10 and $15 tiers, as well as that aforementioned $100 tier, you get a producer's credit shout out, which leads us to producer's credit shout outs too. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, well then consider supporting those listeners in contributing to the $10 tier or above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews and also at the $5 tier and above, I've been posting some video versions of past Parallax Views programs that I think you will very much enjoy, so check that all out at patreon.com slash parallaxviews that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews and with that being said until next time you've been listening to parallax views with parallax views to parallax views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. 
speaking by, I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.